Well, we have a theme for this year. It's called Better Together. And we talked about this last week again as a reminder. I want to say it again. We are, as we all know, better together. We all need friends. How many in the room would say, yeah, you know what? I would love to have more and better uh, close friends. Anybody? All right, most all of us, right? Everybody feels that way. King Solomon once said, if, a, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the fool, I mean, no, pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. That's straight from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We all need more friends. We all want more friends, better friends, close friends. So we began a series last Sunday, and we're going to pick it up week two of the series today, all about how to develop closer uh, friends based on some biblical friendships that we see and want to learn from in God's holy word. Last week, as you know, if you were here, we looked at the cool story of Ruth and Naomi, um, friends that we called unlikely friends, and some of the things that we could learn from their story. And today, I want us to look at the story of David and Jonathan, who were best friends, or you might even say BFFs, uh, close, close friends. Speaking of that term, BFF, anybody ever use that? You know, maybe with somebody, some people do, mostly it's children or younger people that do. My wife's a school teacher, or was for many years. And when she taught kindergarten a few years back, she had a young girl that was in her class. And at the end of the year, the six-year-old turned to her and said, Mrs. Park, I love you. We are going to be BFFs forever. And, um, which is a little redundant since, you know, best friends forever, forever, I guess, is what she was trying to say. But, but um, you know, friendships can come in all shapes and sizes and all of that. But we're talking about extra special, extra close, intimate friendships. That's what I want us to talk about today. Now, we all know there are different levels of friendship, but I would, in fact, say there are three different distinct types, and there's a sliding scale from one to the next, but three main levels of friendship with, again, um, places in between. But uh, first of all, we have casual friends. We all have lots of these. They're neighbors, coworkers, classmates, maybe acquaintances at church or other places we might bump into people. We're comfortable around them. We enjoy them. We may not necessarily go out of our way to spend time together, but it's cool and comfortable when it happens. Casual friends. Then we also have, most of us all have close friends. People we feel so comfortable with that sometimes we invite them over to our home for dinner or they us, and maybe we go to games or movies or whatever, stuff like that together. We're, we're close friends, and when we need help, we know that we could call them and that they would be there for us. But there's a third level, and I want to talk about that today. The deepest level of friendships, I guess we could call them BFFs, or just best friends. Uh, these are people with whom we have such a merging of experiences and philosophy about life that over time we become intimate friends, just extra close friends. These are people you're totally honest with, completely vulnerable in front of. They know you inside and out, and you them. Christian researcher and author Richard Exley described these friends like this. I think we'll have it on the screen. He said, these are people, someone to be with when you have to get away, but you can't bear to be by yourself. They are friends who provide a safe place in a demanding world, a place where you can let your hair down. Hmm. Anyway, and, uh, and be yourself. <laughs> a, place, a place where you don't have to weigh every word. You can share your dreams without fear of being put down. You can even share your fears without risk to the relationships. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? 
super incredibly close relationship. I would add an intimate friend is somebody who knows you well enough that they could ruin you, but they don't, partly because they love you so much and partly because they know you could do the same to them because you are that close. You know that, know each other that well. True BFFs are rare. If you have one or two, even throughout the whole course of your lifetime, you're probably ahead of the curve. Uh, it's a really special thing. Well, the Old Testament characters, David and Jonathan, provide an example of this kind of friendship, and that's what I want to look at with you today. In fact, if you find that appealing and go, yeah, I'd like to have one or two of those or more than I already have, then will you open your Bible, turn your Bible, open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you don't have it with you, you might find one in the chair there around you, or you can follow along on the screen. But let's look at 1 Samuel together. And let's examine this well-known relationship between these two special young men and their friendship and ask God to help us not only learn about friendship, but learn how to apply these things in our world today, in our lives today. Would you bow your head and let me just lead us in that short prayer? Father, we do, as we open your word, we just want to know what you want us to know. We want to learn what you want us to learn about friendship today. Not only the horizontal relationships on earth here, but also, of course, most importantly, our vertical friendship, our relationship that is so perfect with you. So guide us today, Lord, to see and understand and learn what you want us to, not just to gain knowledge and understanding, but to learn how to apply it and be who you want us to be in these ways. And we pray in Jesus' name, and everybody together said, amen. Amen. You know, when David and Jonathan were growing up, no one would have thought that they would end up being best friends. I mean, if you knew them independent of each other, you would have never put them together. I mean, think about it. David was the eighth son of a shepherd, and he worked in a pasture, whereas Jonathan was the first son of a king, and he grew up in a palace. I mean, it's very different. I mean, country boy, city boy, the palace, the pasture. I mean, these guys didn't have a whole lot in common initially. But I can think of at least three reasons they became close friends initially and then eventually moved to becoming intimate or best friends. First of all, briefly, I'll just tell you this. David was invited to the palace to play music. See, he was mostly a shepherd boy out there taking care of his dad's sheep and all of that. But, uh, but he learned to play what the Bible calls a harp which might be more like a modern-day guitar. We're not sure about that. But when King Saul was troubled by demonic spirits that took him to a deep place, a, a, a dark place of like the pit of despair and depression, he would often uh, call upon David to come and play his music, which would soothe his soul and calm him down and settle his nerves. David was, was actually described by one of Saul's attendants as, and this is from uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 18, as an excellent musician, courageous, well-spoken, good-looking, and God is with him, which, of course, is the key. David was so helpful that eventually he was hired to be on the palace staff full-time on a permanent basis and play his guitar at a, or his harp, I mean, at a, at a moment's notice. And therefore, he and, he and Jonathan spent a lot of time together. They were in the same building together, growing up in that respect, probably as teens and they became close friends, which, of course, again, naturally has to happen before you can become intimate friends. You don't just go from here to there. It's a process. Well, a second factor that solidified their relationship was that they had kindred spirits. I mean, these guys were cut from the same cloth in so many ways, type A personalities, loved adventures, lived life on the edge. 
if, uh, if they were alive today, they're the kind of guys who'd be skydiving and you know, riding their motorcycles off crazy dangerous places, rock climbing probably without ropes, these kinds of guys. And in fact, for example, let me tell you a couple of stories that illustrate that. One day, young David was sent by his father to the battlefield to take a care package, basically, to his older brothers who were part of the army. You probably have heard this story before. I'll just summarize it, but it's the story of David and Goliath. It's in 1 Samuel 17 if you want to read it more. But basically, David shows up, and there's this giant who's roughly 10 feet tall, almost 10 feet tall, a monster of a man, a fighting machine, a killing machine. And basically, he's representing the Philistine army saying, look, hey, you out there, you Israelites, pick your biggest, baddest guy, send him out here, we'll do this mono a mono thing, have this battle to the death, and whoever wins will win for his whole army, and the losing army will be subject to the winning army based on just this one-on-one thing. Bring him out here, let's go, come on. And everybody's scared to death. They look at that giant, they're like, there's no way. There's no, I'm not doing that. You, no, I'm not doing that. And nobody wants to fight him. Well, David shows up with the care package for his brothers, sent by his dad to come and do that. And he says, he says in verse 26, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy, here's the key, the armies of the living God? Who, who is he that is allowed to say these things about Almighty God and his army of people? So finally, he says, hey, look, if none of you will fight him, I will. And everybody's like, oh, well, that's, that's bold, that's courageous, that's nice, young boy. But, you know, go back to taking care of your sheep. There is no way in the world you can handle that. Even King Saul was like, you know, that was nice, and I love how you play your, your heart, but there's no way you can do this. In fact, his brothers were even rude to him about this. But, but David per, 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 persists, and he Goes on to say in verse 34, he says, I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. What, when a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. And these stories in the Old Testament can get kind of graphic, but here you go. He, he goes, I have done this to both lions and bears. We're not talking about squirrels and rabbits. Lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For, and this is the key, before he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. So he just persist to the point that they finally say, okay, nobody else is going to do it. This is, not going to, this is not a good idea, but all right, go ahead. Oh, our fate is in his hands. We are in trouble. But they let him go. He tries on the armor of Saul. It doesn't fit. And he's like, I don't need that anyway. Just give me a slingshot and these five smooth stones. I'll take him out. And I'm like, oh boy, okay, here you go. And off he goes. And Goliath is very put out when he sees his little boy, his ruddy boy, the Bible says. And in fact, Goliath says in verse 43, he said, what, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed him and his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'm going to rip your flesh in too. I'm going to tear you apart, little boy, and I'll show everybody. Pretty intimidating coming from a guy like him, but not to David. David replied to the Philistine with confidence, basically, look, yeah, you're impressive. You are a big honking monster, but while you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's army, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. So he comes at him with great courage and strength, but it's not because of what he brings to the table. It's because of whose side he's on and who he knows is on his side. 
And then I love verse 48. The Bible says that as Goliath moved closer to attack, you know, lumbering probably, all right, all right now here we go, let's go. David, rather than what I would have thought maybe, like, okay, dear God, here we go. I'm really scared, but okay, help me. And, you know, I'm kind of dancing around. No, what does David do? Check it out. He runs to the battle. He runs to face this adversary. And you know the rest of the story. We won't go into it. But basically, he uses that slingshot. He drops that. I mean, he throws one, drops it, lays it right into the guy's forehead, drops him like a rock. He runs over there and takes the giant's own sword out of his scabbard and cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword and wins a great battle for, for the Lord's people that day. It's an incredible story. Well, this kind of courage resonated with Jonathan. Jonathan was the same kind of guy, cut from the same cloth. He was a brave soldier as well. He wasn't some pampered prince. A lesser-known story comes a couple of chapters earlier. Let me read it to you. 1 Samuel 14, verse 6 and following. Uh, Jonathan said this to his armor-bearer. He said, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. I hope you see a common denominator starting to develop between he and David's approach. He said, do, you th- do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I am with you completely, whether, whatever you decide. All right, then, we will cross over and let them see us. Now, if they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we will stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. So when the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost up here shouted down to Jonathan, Come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. So look again. Just like David who ran toward Goliath, Jonathan said, Come on, climb right behind me to his armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, And the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed, the two of them, killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. And again, God gave them a great victory. I hope you see the common denominator in these two guys. But, you know, first of all, in addition to being courageous and adventurous, I hope you understand they had a lot in common. This is a really cool friendship that's starting to take place. I don't know, but I would guess... Later, as they're growing up, Jonathan probably taught David a thing or two about how to use a sword, maybe how to shoot the bow and arrow more precisely. And obviously, David had an opportunity to teach Jonathan how to throw a slingshot or use one, all that. But there was one more key thing. I hope you saw it developing in those stories. The most important thing that they had in common that sealed their relationship, that is that they both had a deep faith in Almighty God. In the midst of a fire, fiery and fierce battle, they both said similar things like, hey, this is not about me. This is about Almighty God. You have defied the armies of the living God, and I come in His name, not my own, and because He's with me, greater is He who's in me than He who's in the world, and you're going to fall today because of God being on my side. Now, it's surprising to me that Jonathan was a godly man, considering the spiritual rebellion of his dad, King Saul, who we'll see in a little bit, but, you know, when you have two young men, same age, you know, common environment, similar temperament, but especially two guys that love the Lord the way they did, it's a recipe for an awesome friendship. 
And in a similar way, maybe that's something we can all develop as well. Here's the first lesson for us out of this story or this, this look at David and Jonathan's friendship. And that is best friends develop naturally, naturally over time. If you're filling in the blanks, write that down. Naturally over time. You know, some people are so eager for an intimate friendship that they force it too fast. You know, maybe it's just a casual friendship they have, and yet they just dive in headfirst. They kind of mess it up by going too fast. You know, they start spilling their inmost secrets, you know, the guts of what they are all about to this other person before they even really get to know them. Or they demand time commitments that are unreasonable, and they drive other people away because they're insecure and really just pretty needy and impatient. I think about this, how it works in a dating relationship. I would guess all of us have seen this play out. You know, they, somebody starts talking too fast about what's going on in their life and sharing intimate secrets on the first date, and they talk about marriage on the second date and how many children they want on the third date. And, and the other person's like, whoa, whoa, hey, nice to meet you, but, you know, I'm out of here. See, a normal, more secure person instinctively backs away from that kind of unnatural response because it seems, it actually screams insecurity. I mean, it just totally does. There needs to be some mystery for a while and some patience in terms of developing a relationship. It takes time. You know, a little side note, I would encourage everybody to remember, if you want to develop close friendships, let me see it one more time. How many people would like to have closer friendships? Okay, almost everybody. Remember James 1.19. It's not just a verse that has to do with conflict resolution, but also how to develop friendship as well. The, the verse begins two key things I would encourage you to focus on. Everyone needs to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Say it with me. Quick to listen, slow to speak. One more time. Quick to listen, slow to speak. We all need to be there. And I would just tell you this. Basically, you could summarize that as saying we need to ask more questions and give less input. If you do it the opposite way and you become one of those people who does all the talking, you know, hi, nice to meet you. Let me tell you my whole life story. And you just talk, 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 talk. I will almost guarantee you that friendship is not going to develop very far. Whereas if you can learn to do the opposite and ask a lot of questions and not do all the talking, ask a lot of questions, follow up questions, remember as best you can what they said and let that lead you down other things that's going on in their world. If you will do that, that doesn't guarantee you're going to have a close friendship. It takes more than just that, but that paves the way or opens the door for the possibility. Whereas if you go the other way and do all the talking, which most, how many of us think we talk too much most of the time? Come on, the rest of you are liars because we all, most of us tend to if you, if you fail to do this and you don't ask enough questions and you mostly do all the talking, you're going to find that it, it is like a roadblock and it really causes a lot of friendships to struggle, to develop. So ask more questions. Ask more questions. If you get into a relationship, though, and you're excited about it and it's going pretty well, but it seems to kind of hit a spot where you just can't get over the hump or whatever, Maybe you need to be patient and just stay where you're at there, remembering that things do take time, and sometimes they top out at a place where you would like it to go further, but it just doesn't. If that's the case, then just be satisfied with the casual friendship. Or maybe it's a close friendship. Just doesn't ever quite get to the intimate thing. That's okay, too. Just understand that and trust that uh, that's the way, that's, that's what it needs to be. You know, Jesus had friends on various levels. I think it's interesting to look at his example in this respect. He had a whole bunch of casual friends, you could call them, a group of about 120 that followed him, that were with him, that were loyal to him. 
But inside of that group of casual friends that were probably more than just casual, but still they were fairly distant, he had an inner circle, a closer group of 12. These were his close friends. We know them as the disciples. But inside of that, he had an inner, inner circle of three. They were his intimate friends, his BFFs, you might say, Peter, James, and John, who, who kind of were privileged with extra special opportunities to hang out with him, experience some things that the others did not, hear things the others did not. That doesn't mean that Jesus was rude or inappropriate to the others. He just had a special bond with those few, those three. And it's, it's clear that these relationships were not instantaneous. They took time to develop. And if it takes time for even Jesus and people to develop close, intimate relationships, who are we to rush things? So be patient. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, though. Verse 1 and following. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, which means they were debriefing about the killing of Goliath, after they'd finished that conversation, Jonathan, the king's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Loved him as himself. Became one in spirit. These uh, phrases are, are seen in other places in Scripture, and in recent years, some have suggested that this friendship therefore seems to have indicated some sort of same-sex attraction, that that's what was happening here. And I just tell you, I think that's totally silly. That's not at all what's in the Scripture. You know, I'll tell you this. Kim is my, my wife, Kimberly, who's playing the keyboard up here. She's my absolute closest friend on earth. My favorite thing about planet earth. She's my best friend, my BFF. But I have other really close, intimate friends as well. My brother, for example, my brother Barry, some of you know him. Another guy named David, who was my roommate for several years in college. We are BFFs as well. And I love them dearly, and I know they love me dearly. I might have even kissed Barry on the cheek at some point in the past, but that doesn't mean I want to sleep with him, if you know what I mean. And I think we have to understand that just because our world wants to, our sex-crazed world wants to take intimacy and pollute it and make it look like something that it's not, that's not what's going on here. And we need to understand that um, there was nothing immoral or illicit about this relationship in any way. Uh, David did have, if you know his story in more detail, you do know that he had sexual temptation, that he had struggles, but it was always with the woman next door, if you know what I mean. So enough said. We'll move on from there. Chapter 18, verse 2 goes on to say, From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he, again, here's the phrase, loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Most commentaries would tell you that giving the sword and the belt were indicators that Jonathan was acknowledging David's supreme authority, that David was the leader of the two. Jonathan was saying, that's cool with me. That's the way it is. Now, keep in mind that Jonathan was the king's son. It's natural for him, of course, to expect to someday be the king. I mean, he's the prince. You would think he would have been jealous of or resentful of David, but he was not. He was David's biggest fan, his biggest advocate, his best friend. And maybe that's because Jonathan was so godly that he just accepted that it was God's will. Maybe he had accepted it because he knew Samuel the prophet had already anointed David to be the next king and he was just willing to swallow that. Or, or maybe it was because he didn't even want to be king himself. He'd seen the pressure 
and, and the stress that it put on his dad. And he was like, I don't want that. Who knows? We don't know. But for one reason or another, just like we saw with Ruth and Naomi last week, if you were here, we see Jonathan giving David space, but also rejoicing with David when David had good things happen in his life, when success came his way. This relationship developed over time, and as it developed, there was not any jealousy or struggles like that or resentfulness. Jonathan had accepted the fact that it was God's will for David to be the next king, and he loved and supported David. And David became a big hero. I mean, a, a superstar in the eyes of most everybody. I mean, he had defeated Goliath, and Saul had rewarded him by giving him a high rank in the army. And basically, everything David did, everything he touched turned to gold. Everything went well. Everybody in the kingdom admired him and respected him and was like, wow, David's so awesome. And when I say everybody, I mean mostly everybody. You see, the Bible goes on to teach that over time, King Saul became more and more jealous. At one point, he was cool with David, and then later, not so much. And he became jealous of David's popularity and success, and it began to eat at him like cancer. I mean, just destroy him. Songs were sung about Saul slaying his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, which did not sit well with Saul. I'm the king. Why are they singing this about David? And he got to a place so filled with jealousy that he wanted David dead. I mean, he sought to kill him with every ounce that he had, every ounce of strength. Few things can consume you from the inside out like jealousy. Few things. Maybe unforgiveness, you know, dissatisfaction or discontentment in certain areas. But as you read this story in Scripture, you see that Saul was slowly eaten alive by jealousy and ego. And there's so much for us to learn about this in this story. You know, one author called jealousy the jaundice of the soul. Yeah, it's an ugly thing. Well, multiple times Saul tried to kill David, sometimes very overtly and openly, sometimes in a more, you know, sneaky way. But he was so jealous and discontented and filled with all of this that he desperately wanted David dead. <clears throat> in fact, that's what he was consumed of in terms of thought. But look at how Jonathan stood up for David. This is going to be the second point. You'll see it in a moment. This was right after one of those times, one of the many times that Saul tried to kill David. First Samuel 19 verse 4 says, the next morning Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David. He's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about that time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? Dad, do you remember? You, you were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David now? There's no reason for it all. If you're filling in the blanks, here's second lesson. A genuine best friend stands up for you even behind your back. Even behind your back. Or you could also add even when it's costly. If you're a true friend, if you are a true friend or a best friend with somebody, you don't cut them down or gossip about them or even joke about them or, or undermine them in any way, even in subtle little eh, innocent, no big deal, no such thing, thing behind their back. You don't do that. A real friend stands up for you and is loyal to you even when it might cost them. Jonathan stood up to his dad, who not only was his dad, but remember, this is the king, the man who can stay off with his head to anybody, including his own son at any point. And it nearly did cost 
Jonathan his own life because Saul's rage and jealousy was out of control and, and it almost cost Jonathan as well. But he and David had each other's back no matter what. And that doesn't mean that a best friend, that best friends always agree about everything. Not necessarily, but a true best friend is someone you don't have to worry about in this context. A true best friend, an intimate friend is somebody you know has your back. And, and you know that they have yours and you have theirs. It's, a, it's an understood thing. You don't even have to really think about it or talk about it. You just know it's there. Well, in this instance, Jonathan's word did seem to help his dad for the moment. But uh, his anger seemed to subside, but it was only temporary. Before long, Saul was right back at it trying to find ways to orchestrate David's death and, and kill him. Because he never really dealt with it. He never really surrendered that to the Lord. He never repented of any of that. He never turned from any of that. And David sniffed it out. He saw it coming. But Jonathan, now here's another thing we'll see in a moment here in terms of another lesson. Jonathan didn't see it. He couldn't see it. He didn't want to see it. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3. Then David took an oath before Jonathan and said to Jonathan, Your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I, this is David talking to Jonathan, I swear to you, Jonathan, that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. You know, we want to believe the best in people that we love in particular. So, so much so that we often are naive toward things in them. You know, if a son tells his mother he's not doing drugs anymore, even though he's had all kinds of problems with it, she's quick to say, okay, I want to believe that, and she does, even though there may be all kinds of warning signs to the contrary. Or maybe it's a husband and wife. Maybe the husband has cheated numerous times, and he tells his wife, <clears throat> I, I, I promise it's never going to happen again. And yet, despite not putting up any kind of barriers or you know, not, not doing what needs to be done to you know, have accountability or maybe, maybe some kind of internet safety device you know, on his program on his computer, none of those things are in place, and yet she believes him. And then later, she's heartbroken. David, in a similar way, said, Jonathan, listen, your father is trying to kill me again. Jonathan's like, no way. My dad's past that. He, he's, he's not like that anymore. Plus, we're close. I would know. Like, no, you wouldn't. You don't know. I'm telling you, though, you don't want to hear it. He is determined to kill me. And here's the third lesson. An intimate friend tells the truth, even if it's unpleasant. Jonathan didn't want to hear that his father was losing it. He loved his dad. He didn't want to hear that. David, I'm sure, didn't want to tell Jonathan bad things about his father, but it was the truth. And so David told him anyway. And close friends do that. They tell each other the truth, even if it's painful. Proverbs 27, we looked at this verse last week, but it fits again here. Verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And what, what do you want? Do you want a brown noser who just tells you what you want to hear, or do you want somebody who loves you enough to tell you stuff that, wow, that stings, but I need to hear it? Maybe a best friend would say things like, Hey, look, I know you think you're in love. And there's some good qualities there, but I just got to tell you, I see some things that make me think, I don't think she or he is right for you. Or maybe, hey, look, I know you're excited about this business venture, but it just doesn't smell right. 
And I think you're in danger of going down a bad path with that. Maybe your reputation or financial security. I, I think it's dangerous. Or maybe, hey, you know what? Yeah, she's really cute. You know, that five-year-old. She's really cute. But I just got to tell you, I think you need to start putting some discipline in her life. Or someday, when she hits, you know, a certain age, you're going to have all kinds of problems. Stuff like that. Or, or maybe it's, you know, I love you, friend, but to me it looks like there's way too much dependency on those painkillers or that alcohol. To me, I, I think you have a problem. Real friends tell each other things like that, and they usually tremble when they do because they're afraid of, I mean, naturally, they're afraid of breaking up that friendship or bringing out the anger in your friend. But if you really care about them, if you really love them as David and Jonathan loved each other, as they loved, each, as they loved themselves, there's that phrase we've seen multiple times, if you do that, then you tell them the truth even if it's painful. Now, you do it in as loving a way as you can, but if you really love them, you don't just tell them what they want to hear or zip it and keep it quiet. You tell them the truth. Friends, if your friend tells you something you don't want to hear, resist the urge to get mad and defensive. Listen to them. Listen to them and pay attention. Now, you may or may not end up agreeing. You may or may not follow their advice, but even if you don't, Resist the temptation to bristle up and get all mad and how dare they and well, that's the end of that. I thought we were good friends and yet they don't take that approach. Recognize that it took guts and it took love for them to come to you. Even if you think at the end of it all, I still don't agree. Give them a hug and tell them, thank you for loving me enough to tell me what you think. David was grateful for Jonathan listening to him. Chapter 20, verse 4, Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Well, the Bible goes on to record that Jonathan and David came up with this clever plan by which Jonathan could verify if his father really was still wanting David dead, which, of course, again, Jonathan didn't believe. And, uh, so, and, and if it was true, then here's what we'll do to, to, to illustrate that. And in short, basically, um, Jonathan found out by asking some questions around the dinner table and stuff, oh, wow, David's right. Dad is, he's hiding it, but the truth is dad does want him dead. I got to let David know. So David's hiding out in the woods uh, in a field behind a boulder. And the plan was, I'm going to shoot a bow, an arrow. And if I shoot it beyond where you're hiding, that means you got you to gotta leave. You were right. He is out to kill you. It's not safe. If I shoot it short, then it's safe. You can come on in. So that's what they do. And, and um, David takes off. For the next decade or so, David lives as a fugitive, hunted like a dog. He gathered around him 600 malcontents or so rugged men who served as his own private army. They hid in caves. They sought refuge in foreign countries, and they lived off the land. And I tell you what, there are some amazing stories. Oh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are some of the most exciting books in the Bible. If you want to read something really interesting, put away the man-made stuff. Read this. It is incredible, the stories in, in God's Word. But anyway, one day Jonathan discovered where David was and risked his life to sneak out and meet him for what ended up being their last encounter together, as far as we can see in Scripture. Um, comedian Jeff Foxworthy once said, they say you know a person is a good friend <clears throat> when you call them in the middle of the night and ask them to come down and get you out of jail, and they don't ask what you did, but just, where are you? And he goes on to say, of course, a really good friend would have been there in jail with you. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but... <clears throat> 
You know, but Jonathan went to find David where he was, you know, as living as a fugitive and encouraged him in the Lord. Look at verse uh, 16 of 1 Samuel 23. It gives a brief description of that final encounter. Jonathan went to find David and encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. Don't be afraid, he assured him. My father will never find you. You're going to be the king of Israel, and I will be next to you, as my father Saul is well aware. So the two of them renewed their solemn pact before the Lord, and Jonathan returned home while David stayed at Horish. If you have a close friend like that, you remain close even though you're separated. You might not see each other for years, but you can pick right up just like that. You know what I'm talking about if you have such a friend. I mentioned my brother Barry and my best friend also from college, David. Uh, I hadn't talked to either one. I hadn't talked to Barry in weeks. Hadn't talked to David in months, I don't think. But I talked to both of them in the last seven days. Just coincidentally, not for the sake of the sermon. I just happened to talk to them. And, and both those conversations were so awesome, comfortable. We were able to laugh and joke, you know, pick up right where we'd left off before. And yet also talk about some heavy stuff going on over there where they live and where I'm at as well. And it's a beautiful thing. All right, here's one final lesson to learn. Number four would be best friends keep their promises even when the promise is costly, even if it's costly. Sometimes later, Jonathan and his father were both killed in battle, and there was a period of civil war and uncertainty that followed. But eventually, David finally, as had been foretold, became a king, the king. And, and he, after he did, he remembered a decade-old promise that he had made to his uh, now-deceased good friend, Jonathan, and that was to care for his family. Now, it was customary, and if you think about it, it's politically expedient to kill all the family of the former king. But David didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. In fact, he sent his people to go out and look for and find, is there anybody still related to Jonathan still alive? It's been a, a bloody, brutal time in history. But he didn't want to do that to kill him. He wanted to bless them. And so anyway, his, his guys went out and found this one son of Jonathan whose name was Mephibosheth, I often mess that up. Mephibosheth, who was disabled. See, when Mephibosheth, told you, was five years old, his nurse had dropped him while she had been running, and, <clears throat> and his feet were injured, and he was never able to walk. Well, David, David's men found him, and uh, David brought this young man into the palace and adopted him as his own, even though he had special needs, even though he was crippled. 2 Samuel 9 says, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. A good friend keeps his promises even when it's not convenient. A best friend, if they tell you they're going to be there, they show up. If they tell you they'll pay you back, they pay you back. If they promise they'll follow through with XYZ favor that you ask, they do it. Psalm 15, verse 4 teaches that a righteous man is one who, and listen to the quote, quote, keeps his oath even when it hurts. Keeps his oath even when it hurts. That's one of the things that made this friendship so special. That's also one of the things that made Jesus so special. As we close this morning, I want you to think about Jesus. We, we've talked mostly about horizontal relationships, which are important. But our vertical relationship with Almighty God is preeminent, is more important. And I want you to think about Jesus for a minute. You know, he's a man who keeps his oath even when it hurts. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He became his own search and rescue team 
for you and I when we, think about it, like Mephibosheth, when we were crippled. Maybe not with our literal feet, maybe, but maybe it's more like Saul. We're crippled with jealousy or ego or hatred or unforgiveness or selfishness or inconsistency or you name it. In the middle of our special needs, our crippled selves, the Bible tells us in Romans that while we were yet sinners, in the middle of all of that, while we were in the middle of that, Christ died for us. When we come and lay our crutches at His table in front of Jesus, He adopts us into His family just like David did, Mephibosheth. Jesus adopts us into his family and says, come and be with me, be part of this family forever. And I just want to ask you if you would right now to stand. We're going to close with this. If you want closer friendships, I hope you can learn from some of these things we've talked about. More importantly than that, if you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and best friend, I want to invite you to take him up on his invitation. You can come down here at the front and meet me or Mac or any of the others. Maybe somebody beside you say, will you come with me? And maybe you just want to kneel. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. But Jesus so desperately wants to be your best friend and your Lord and Savior. So much so that he went to the cross to die for you. To die, to give his life. What more could he have done? Let's sing about that as we sing about a decision to make. I have decided. Let's sing it and let's worship together. And if you want to come, do it today. Do it right now.